You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gravey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gravey, the host of the show. My guest today is Liz Carlisle. Liz is assistant professor in the environmental studies program at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She is the author of Lentil Underground and co-author with Bob Quinn of Grain by Grain and has written both popular and academic articles about food and farming policy, incentivizing soil health practices, and supporting new entry farmers. Today, I'm excited because we're going to talk with her about her newest book, Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Liz, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. Well, I am just excited to speak with you about your book, Healing Grounds. But before we get started, I have to ask you about touring America as a country singer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what better experience as a young person? It it really did get me sort of turned on to this whole field of sustainable agriculture because I I traveled to so many different rural communities um, across the United States. And I heard a a lot of fascinating stories of people's um, land stewardship traditions and and their sort of family history and cultural history with, with farming and stewarding land. And I heard these kind of common themes about the barriers that people were running up against in terms of the food system that we have, the economy that that farmers have to contend with in terms of the agricultural sector and the policies. And so that's that's really what got me started down this whole pathway of interviewing farmers and trying to understand how to build a more sustainable food system. Well, that's wonderful. You know, it's interesting how we choose our paths and something like what you were doing, you weren't thinking this is why I'm doing it. You just did it probably because you love doing it. And this one thing led to another. That's wonderful. I love, I love hearing stories like that. That's great. So your book, Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming goes far beyond creating climate change with just regenerative farming. We're certainly hearing much about sequestering carbon through this process, but there's more to it, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if the soil could tell us the story of the last 500 years on this land, um, it, it would tell us that those processes through which carbon that used to be in the soil ended up getting released into the atmosphere were part of larger social processes as well. And so in this book, I try to take stock of those 500 years of why we lost that carbon that was in the soil and what it would take socially and culturally um, to, to heal this land, to put that carbon back, but also to heal the relationships between people and land. It's not just about the chemical agriculture, although that is that is a problem that, you know, has gotten us partially where we are today. But I'm really excited to 
talk with you further about what you've learned. So you write in the book about your conversation with a social ecologist about soil carbon sequestration. Uh, Can you share a bit about that conversation and how that left you wondering about the type of agriculture she was promoting? It it sounded like you had a lot of epiphanies uh, listening to her. And I know this is a, a long question, but I feel like it's an important one. So can you share a little bit about what your thought process was back then? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote in the introduction about this incredible conversation, and I had a series of conversations with Francesca Cotrufo, um, who's a soil ecologist at Colorado State University, who works to understand the processes through which we might sequester carbon in the soil. So actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere, where it's causing all these greenhouse gas issues and, and put it back into the soil because there used to be more carbon in the soil prior to, um, you know, just a tremendous amount of plowing and industrial agriculture and forms of agriculture that don't leave plants on the ground all year round. So the soil's losing carbon. So Francesca described to me that soil um, essentially has a checking account of carbon and a savings account of carbon. And I love this metaphor that she uses about how in that checking account, um, there are forms of soil carbon that plants use to meet their fertility needs. So the soil is using some of that carbon um, on, on an everyday basis, you know, because the plants, they need, they need their nitrogen and they need their soil organic matter to be healthy. But then there's also a savings account of carbon in the soil. And so in a healthy ecosystem, soils are able to take some of that carbon and actually store it really deep underground in association with minerals where it stays for a long time. And so that's the carbon sequestration process we're interested in from a climate change perspective. And so for Francesca, she's interested in, well, for farmers, you know, how would they manage plants in a way that maximized that savings account that made sure that some of that carbon was going into the soil and staying there? And long story short, the answer is roots. So there's a lot of ways to add carbon to soil. um, And some of your listeners are probably familiar with things like compost and mulch, above ground carbon, things that you put on the ground that then get incorporated into the soil. But from the perspective of a savings account of carbon that stays there for a long time in association with minerals, there's no substitute for what roots do, actual living roots that are in the ground. So having perennial plants, plants that live for multiple seasons, um, and having um, cover crops in the off season in between crops, those things are really important because those keep roots in the ground all year round. And it's the exudates from those roots, literally the things the roots are feeding their microbial partners. That's what's actually adding to that savings account. And so That conversation with Francesca left me thinking, okay, so if roots are the key to carbon sequestration in a climate-friendly food system, why are people having so many challenges with being deeply rooted on land? What are the processes through which people have been uprooted? And that led to this whole series of questions and kind of digging into these histories of why people haven't been able to kind of put down roots and stay there for multiple generations on this continent, um, you know, that I call home. Wow, that's a big issue. So before we go into 
how you explored that issue further. Let's talk about carbon credits and how policies like we currently have are insufficient to shift carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, the policies that we currently have have barely even tackled this issue. So if you think about the major agricultural legislation at the federal level, the farm bill, it's still kind of built on a model that got started in the wake of the depression, where we compensate farmers just on a basis of planting commodities. It used to be that farmers just got a payment for their base acres, the number of acres they planted in one of these commodities. So things like wheat and corn and soy that got identified at that time in the depression as the kind of, um, you know, staple foodstuffs. Um, and now we have a crop insurance system that does much the same thing. So we actually have not transitioned our federal policy to account for all the really important things that farmers do to contribute to um, you know, what scientists would call ecosystem services or the things we all count on in our environment, like clean water um, and healthy soils. Uh, that's a really important thing that we need farmers to do as land stewards. And we have not structured our federal policy to actually incentivize that. But there is a conversation right now at the federal level about creating carbon credits. Um, and there's also conversations outside of the federal policy sphere. There are people talking about this who are more, um, you know, kind of social entrepreneurs who are thinking about ways to maybe do this through some kind of private sector market as well. Um, but my concern with that approach is that sometimes I think it's a little too narrowly scoped that we're thinking about, well, how can we create some kind of measurement system that helps us trace the movement of carbon atoms into soil? Um, that's kind of an emerging science. It, it's really interesting to try to trace these things at the microbial level. But I think if we really want carbon to not only go into the soil, but to stay there for a long period of time, which of course is what's be put in the savings account. Exactly. Yeah, and stay there. <laughs> then we need to think about um, healthy farm ecosystems. What are the um, all of the elements of those ecosystems that will keep that carbon in place? And we really need to think about also the social and cultural aspects of agriculture that keep people deeply rooted. Because if we don't, you know, how disappointing would it be to pay a farmer with carbon credits, but then, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later, the farm gets sold, somebody comes through with a plow and all of that work is lost in one growing season. Well, I know that there's so much big agro business out there too that um, have bought up a lot of the smaller farms and and families just weren't able to sustain, you know, farming and make a living. So I know that's an issue too. Let's talk a little bit about what you feel. What are we doing wrong? And what are a few things we're doing right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are Agriculture is really diverse in this country. Yes. So that was an important message that I wanted to share in this book is sometimes we think of it as you can get depressed about um, consolidation in agribusiness as you were just referring to. And you can, you can get to the point where you think that all that's going on out there are those four firms that control meatpacking or those four firms that control um, grain processing. But I wanted in this book to highlight 
everything really important that's been happening on the margins of that consolidated food system, where people have been continuously demonstrating what is possible and and on a regional scale, doing incredible work to feed their own communities and steward their own lands. And I think that, you know, what remains is, is for us as a society to recognize that that's the agriculture that serves, um, you know, all of our interests. That's the agriculture creating healthy food and healthy communities and stewarding land. And so we need to figure out how to shift power and how to shift policy such that that's the agriculture that we're all supporting to, to continue growing and thriving. Yeah. Well, it's sometimes it seems like a big fight. Yeah. Well, it, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm more solution based just in general. Yes, there's a lot of problems in this world, but okay, I think for every problem, we, we can find a solution. So I think that's what you were doing in this book, is you are exploring solutions that aren't talked about a lot. So, um, so in writing the book, you travel to the Montana Prairie, uh, to a North Carolina forest and California Central Valley. And you, you meet five women of color on the forefront of regenerative agriculture. When you were doing your research for the book, which shaped how you viewed regenerative farming and land justice, let's discuss how you came up. Well, we know where this idea came from because you, 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 kind of talked about it in, in getting our roots set down. So let's start with somebody that you went to visit, Latrice Tapsey, otherwise known as Buffalo Stone Woman, and her work on the reintroduction of bison. So let's talk a little bit about that and why that is so important. Yeah, I learned so much from Latrice. And, you know, before this conversation, I had, I had heard a little bit about this idea of regenerative grazing, which was fascinating to me um, because I, I'd certainly heard about issues with cattle grazing, um, degrading land, but the regenerative grazing conversation was about how people who raise cattle and other livestock could learn from the way in which native herbivores had historically grazed and moved across the land because those native herbivores had evolved with the vegetation and they had evolved this kind of balance where native herbivores would graze really heavily, but then they'd move on. And so that vegetation would have time to recover. And in a best case scenario, the grazing would stimulate the vegetation to grow and, and grow really deep roots in particular, um, such that if it then had time to rest and regrow, the whole system could actually lead to more ecological productivity, healthier, healthier vegetation, more roots, more carbon sequestration. And so I had heard about this and in the scientific community, the native herbivores were discussed as kind of like this historical model that you could learn from a conceptual model. But when I went and spoke with Latrice, she said, no, no, the native herbivores, the bison or the Ini, as, as her people call them, she's a member of Blackfeet Nation in Northwest Montana. She said, there are relatives 
there are teachers, they do teach us how to take care of these landscapes in the way that they move across the lands and in the way that they selectively graze to create this mosaic of diverse vegetation on the prairie. And we need to bring our relatives, our teachers home so that we can be in continual relationship with them and they can continually show us how to live in balance with these lands. So she's really active in, in Buffalo restoration efforts, um, which have been gaining incredible ground in this part of the world. And she's, she's just finishing up her master's degree at Montana State University, and she's been studying how buffalo grazing impacts soil ecological processes and how bringing the buffalo home might be really helpful in the fight against climate change. But at the same time, her family are cattle ranchers. And so she also thinks about this from the standpoint of how having buffalo on the landscape can help teach uh, those families that do ranch cattle um, how to do that in a way that's consistent with those historical relationships that Buffalo have always had with the land and with Blackfeet people. Oh, that's wonderful. Are you familiar with Tanya Blackmore? No. Uh, uh, she is a woman I interviewed many years ago. I want to say 10, at least 10 years ago. And she did a very similar thing. She her family had some land and she decided um, to move back to the land. And long story short, she brought back the buffalo. And it's just, a, it's, it's fascinating. And if our listeners want to hear that story, um, just go to the main page, the blog and search uh, buffalo and she'll come up. But yeah, I'll, I'll give you more information about her because I think you would enjoy meeting her as well. So uh, I'm going to read a quote from Latrice, which she says, when you have healthier plant species, they are taking more CO2 out of the atmosphere and bringing it back in the soil profile, which potentially mean buffalo could help us respond to climate change. And yeah. I, I think that's amazing. And nearly 30 million buffalo were killed, and that was tragic. But also many other components of the prairie ecosystem was simultaneously destroyed. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think this was probably my main aha moment from this whole project is, as you were saying, you know, in my early work on sustainable agriculture and how do we shift agriculture from being a climate problem to a climate solution, I learned a lot about the period in the, the middle of the 1900s after World War II when agriculture industrialized and more industrial chemicals were used and the whole system became kind of dependent on those chemicals. And that was a, a period in history I'd focused on a lot as kind of where we started to go down the wrong path. <laughs> but with this book, I realized that that period of industrialization and, and corporate concentration and consolidation, it had built on a deeper history that in a sense, we as a country were primed for that industrialization by earlier processes that established this logic of agriculture being an extractive activity. And really what established that logic was the process of colonization. That was the moment at which um, you know, European explorers and colonizers 
thought about the North American landscape as a place from which to extract resources to then consolidate wealth in another place, you know, initially in Europe, ultimately sort of um, in, in elite um, centers on the East Coast of this country. But that was the historical process that, I mean, that's the one we've got to reckon with and shift if we really want to shift these dynamics that are creating an extractive agriculture that causes climate change and all sorts of other things today. And so in terms of the North American prairie and, and what happened, what shifted in that ecosystem from a time when you had buffalo and indigenous people, indigenous people using fire to amplify the um, positive impacts of the buffalo grazing cycle on the vegetation, you had all of this, um, a system in which the landscape was managed through mobility, that people and buffalo and fire, they were all adjusting to these seasonal rhythms in order to um, sort of receive the gifts of the land as they were there and, and when they were there and where they were there. But through this process of colonization, not only did you know these military folks um, exterminate bison and exterminate indigenous people in this campaign of genocide, those that were left, they fenced into place. So they created this system um, of reservations, of boarding schools for indigenous people, and uh, fences for ranches. Um, and, and those bison that remained were in, um, you know, reserves where they were fenced in. And so that was a very different relationship with the land where neither the people nor the animals could move around adjusting to these seasonal rhythms. And so those the, the relationships that they had of this kind of mutual care through mobility were um, disrupted through that process. And so what's, what's so beautiful about Buffalo restoration in tandem with indigenous land sovereignty is it's bringing back those relationships between people and animals and land to, to relate to each other in this dynamic way, rather than being, you know, literally fenced in by these colonial processes. Well, whenever we are out of sync with nature, things just don't turn out great. That's the bottom. That's the bottom line. And thirty million buffalo—that that's that number is astronomical. And also, that was a huge food source. And now, you know, people eat buffalo as you know as as meat these days, but not that much. And it's really, it, it's got more omega-3s than omega-6s. And we know too many omega-6s cause inflammation. So there's so many reasons to, to bring back the buffalo. So I really love what Latrice is doing. And it just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful thing to witness. I, I am originally from Montana. I, I come from a white settler background. I'm not indigenous to the place. But even as a really, really young person, you know, I grew up just as this Buffalo restoration was getting going and to see Buffalo on their native prairie and in relationship with people who've been in relationship with them since time immemorial. You're you're right. It's it just feels right. There's um those relationships, I think they have so much to teach us all, you know, even if you're not indigenous, there's so much to learn from seeing those processes unfold. Yes, there certainly is. So in the chapter, Black Land Matters, 
You talk about a woman, Olivia Watkins, and how she began learning about the history of Black land loss and her story of returning the land that had been in her family for 130 years. Why is her story so relevant to the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Olivia Watkins is just an absolutely remarkable person. And and through talking with her about her experience and her family stories, it helped me to really better understand the larger story of Black agrarianism and, and the legacy that is carried within the Black community of regenerative agriculture and traditions that date all the way back to the African continent and also the incredible obstacles that the Black community has faced. And then in the face of those obstacles, actually how those agrarian traditions have been really important to the Black liberation movement. Um, Even things like, um, you know, folks may be very familiar with Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, but may not know that she was an herbalist and um, knew a lot about uh, the forest and the woods and the plants that grew there and used those um, culinary and medicinal plants um, to help people survive along their journey out of slavery. Um, And of course, you know, a little bit later in history, Fannie Lou Hamer, who's a very famous civil rights activist, um, one of her big initiatives was this farm, um, this, this cooperative farm. Um, and, and she too, we know, was part of this Black agrarian tradition. But Olivia Watkins in particular, um, her ancestor, her great, great uncle was one of the first landowners, Black landowners in what's now the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area in a little town called Holly Springs. So he bought this piece of forested land all the way back in 1890. And that that land stayed in her family, which was quite remarkable because I also learned about all the ways in which Black landowners were dispossessed through violence and legal shenanigans and ultimately a, a great deal of discrimination at the USDA. But Olivia's family managed to hang on to that land through all of that. And that plot of forest was a sanctuary for a Black family in a time when there was a lot of white-led violence and discrimination. It was a place where Olivia's ancestors felt safe. And her legacy with that land, she ultimately, she's been managing it now for a few years. She kind of took that on from her grandmother. And what she saw was not only that it was still very important for there to be safe spaces for Black people, but also that the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area had been rapidly urbanizing and that many of the um, you know, non-human <laughs> relatives that, that her family had shared that space with, animals, plants, um, soil carbon for that matter, were threatened in this area because of all of this rapid urbanization. So she committed to conserving that forest and and the form of farming that she does, forest farming, she grows mushrooms um, on the forest floor. She's experimented with some other things as well, um, such that she doesn't have to cut the trees down because she sees that this sanctuary space um, that has been conserved as black land is also a sanctuary space that's been conserved as wildlife habitat and a place for, for soil carbon sequestration. That's wonderful because so many of our forests are being cut down. And I think I think that area has the largest number of forests in the U.S., that area of uh, North Carolina, right? Is that accurate? Yeah, the Southeast has a lot of forested land. I mean, that's sort of what the landscape is historically. 
And it's, there's a complex situation where, um, you know, there's been a really active timber industry. And in some cases, monocultures of just one tree have been planted for, you know, industrial timber purposes. And that's one of the things that's really special about Olivia Watkins land is it's a diverse forest. It's not just this one species. And from a habitat perspective and from an ecological perspective, you really need that diversity of multiple species in a forest. Right. And we know that the loss of trees around the world is responsible for 10 to 15% of global carbon emissions. Uh, Watkins kept her forest. Can you share why this was so important and what deforestation is doing to us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this has been really striking to me because as a person who studies the connection between food and agriculture and climate change, I look at these pie charts of where greenhouse gas emissions come from. And I see that, you know, a quarter to a third of global greenhouse gases come from our food and agriculture system, which is very sobering. And I see that a huge piece of that pie slice, the biggest piece of the food and agriculture system that's leading to greenhouse gas emissions is deforestation. It's people clearing forested lands in order to raise cattle, in order to have palm oil plantations, monocultural export crops. And so I really look to this wisdom of the African diaspora of agroforestry and building food systems that work with trees rather than against them. And, you know, in talking to Olivia, that really spurred me to do more research and reading and to see this incredible tradition um, that, that does date back to African agriculture and is still very vibrant in Africa, but then has traveled with the Black diaspora to the Americas. And I mean, we're talking about people growing dooryard gardens, enslaved people growing agroforests around the areas where they lived in order to sustain cultural foods. And then, and then this whole history um, going all the way through the reconstruction period and the civil rights movement. And this knowledge of how to raise food with trees rather than cutting them down is so incredibly important at this moment where deforestation is one of the leading causes of climate change. I know, and uh, perhaps we don't think about deforestation unless we're we're thinking about the rainforests. But I mean, it, it's happening here. Yeah, yeah. No, temperate forests are an important part of the story too, and the southeast as a region is is an important part of the story as well. Yes, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, we just. This is like the tip of the iceberg with her story. So our, our listeners are going to have to read the book because it's just, it's just fascinating information. So are there any other women you, women you interviewed that you'd like to share and what you learned from them? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just mention a few things about okay. um, Ade Guzman, who's um, featured in the third chapter of the book. And she's a soil ecologist who studies the relationship between the diversity below ground. So we've been talking about how soil microorganisms are so central to these processes of carbon sequestration and storing that carbon in the savings account where it stays. She studies how all of that diversity below ground 
relates to diversity above ground. So when farmers plant really diverse crops, how that diversity of plants above ground then relates to supporting all those diverse microbes below ground. And um, scientists know a lot about how this works in places like forests or prairies in um, natural ecosystems, but there hasn't been a lot studied on farms, partly because in places like where Ida Guzman is from in California's Central Valley, scientists have this perspective that there's just not enough biodiversity to study, that the agriculture is just too depopulated of biodiversity. There's not enough plants out there to even study what it would be like if there were. Um, but Aide comes from an immigrant family. Her parents actually came from a diverse family farm in Mexico and had to immigrate um, because of a series of economic dynamics to the United States and work in industrial agriculture in the US in the Central Valley. But because they were part of this immigrant community, they knew of these small-scale immigrant-led farms that were biodiverse, where people had brought their cultural foods and they were growing them in these diverse mixtures. And so anyway, as a researcher, as a PhD student, she went out and found um, you know, 30 of these farms um, led by both uh, Mexican-American immigrants and Hmong immigrants. And she was able to do this comparison of highly diverse farms growing with polycultures and farms that were growing um, just one crop. And she was able to demonstrate what a difference that made for the biodiversity below ground that's so important for soil carbon sequestration. Um, she found two types, two times as many types of something called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are these microbes that are really important for these soil ecological processes on the polycultural farms, the diverse farms. And so this is really important finding for kind of the fundamental ecology of understanding soil carbon sequestration. But also, you know, it was an affirmation that these immigrant farmers in California's Central Valley are literally bringing the soil back to life. And I think just a really important um, narrative to kind of counter the, the narratives that I, they heard growing up, um, very negative narratives about immigrants and what their impact was on the community. But here she had this hard evidence of what a positive influence these immigrant farmers are having in the community. That's fascinating. And again, in the book, you go into this um, much more deeply with her story. So anybody else you want to share about any other of the women that you write about? Yeah, well, I, I can't leave out Nikiko Masumoto, um, Aide's <laughs> neighbor, um, who's also, they're both from the Fresno area, more or less. And Nikiko is the third generation on her family's farm. Uh, they grow organic peaches and nectarines and apricots and raisin grapes, um, all of which are really delicious. But um, what so struck me about Nikiko's family's story is that actually, even though there's only three generations on that land, her great-grandparents farmed in California. They were immigrants from Japan but they farmed at a time when there were actually laws in California, um, the alien land law that prohibited Japanese Americans from owning wow. land. Yeah, it was just an openly racist law that said, if you have this ethnic background, you cannot own land in California. And it was updated multiple times to become more and more severe until eventually you couldn't rent land, you couldn't manage land. It was just this blunt-faced attempt to prevent Japanese Americans from gaining any kind of foothold in the farming sector. 
So her great grandparents, um, you know, they, they worked as farm workers. They tried to save money. They hoped maybe the laws would be changed eventually. So their kids could have a farm, but then, um, then there was world war II and there was internment and people of Japanese American descent. They, they were sent to these like prison camps, um, just, just because they were Japanese by heritage. And so that's what happened to Nikiko's grandparents. So they lost everything, but they came out of that camp, um, having fallen in love as teenagers, uh, got married and they said they were just, um, she describes it as this kind of like defiance, um, this <laughs> defiant hope, you know, is like, we are going to plant roots in this soil and we are going to claim belonging as Americans. And so that's the story of the farm um, where Nikiko um, grows, you know, organic stone fruit. And she's really committed to creating a space of belonging for, for everyone um, in California's Central Valley and for everyone's ancestral traditions of regenerative agriculture to have that space to take root in that soil. Well, it's wonderful that you highlight somebody from that area. Um, living in California, when I drive up north, I live in Southern California, it just seems like there's one monocrop after, you know, another. And it's really nice to hear that there's there's more than what we're, what we are seeing as we're driving on the five up north. So thank you for sharing her story. So why did you feel it was important? And maybe this is an obvious question. Why did you write this book? What, what was your hope in writing this book? What did you want the readers to really understand? Mm. Well, I, I'm like you, Carol. I really am drawn to solutions. I think it's important to see that there are people out there already creating the world that we all want to see. Um, and I saw these four women as just exemplary of the agriculture that we need to move towards um, in order to, um, you know, both mitigate climate change, but also be adaptive and resilient in a world that's already impacted by climate change. And I think, you know, the main thing that I learned from these four women is, first of all, that, you know, regenerative agriculture, so an agriculture that, you know, stores carbon in the soil in response to climate change that that's deeply rooted in the ancestral traditions of indigenous communities and communities of color who've been doing these things for hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, you know, this is, this is not a new thing. This is not an unproven thing. This is actually, um, you know, tried and true agricultural methods that are rooted in these communities. And these communities have continued to refine this approach in the face of an extractive agriculture that they've been on the front lines of, you know? So if your family has a history of, you know, folks in your background having been enslaved or folks in your background, you know, indigenous folks having lost their land, then the way you relate to extractive agriculture is as a threat to your own health and safety and community. And so, you know, for hundreds of years, people have been refining a regenerative agriculture because it's part of their own survival and resistance. And so these communities are so ready to lead in, in um, you know, creating and furthering an agriculture that helps us contend with climate change. And so I think it's just, it's just time to support that, you know, in every way we can just support the growth of this, this beautiful work that that's already happening, but could be so much more influential. 
you know, I, I know my, this is where my mind is going. So I'm assuming that some of our listeners may have the same question. So how do we carry this message further? How, what, what can we individually do? Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for, for your listeners who are just passionate about, you know, the way in which their lives as eaters and food citizens can have these ripple effects. I think, you know, any way you can support regenerative farmers of color and, um, you know, folks who are bringing back their indigenous food systems, um, you know, in your life as an eater, um, you know, supporting these businesses and supporting these farms. Um, I think that's a wonderful action to take. Um, and also, you know, then you have delicious new cultural foods potentially in your life. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, also as, as a voter and as, um, you know, in our kind of civic lives, supporting policies that, um, you know, in particular help indigenous communities and communities of color gain access to land. That's a huge barrier. 98% of agricultural land in this country is white owned. Um, but also the access to other things that they need, access to capital, access to um, water, it's a big deal in California, access to markets, um, you know, building up institutional markets can be really helpful. Things like, um, you know, school food can be really helpful vehicles for making sure that this kind of agriculture has a stable market. Um, so I think just continuing to support in all the ways that we can the growth of these regenerative food systems in indigenous communities and communities of color. Yeah. Well, in conclusion, in your chapter called Conclusion, I want to read this paragraph and I want to leave our listeners with this. The communities featured in this book, the indigenous, Black, Latino, and Asian Americans who are often collectively referred to as people of color, make up nearly 40% of the U.S. population. They also account for more than 60% of the current population of agricultural laborers and an even more significant share of the historical agrarian labor force. By the time you, you start crying to quantify how many hours of indigenous labor went into building up the soil that supported the past 200 years of European American agriculture, not to mention the food and sustenance indigenous people provided to settlers when they arrived, it becomes readily apparent that the U.S. food system is almost entirely built on the work of Black and Brown people. That pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Yes. So thank you so much, Liz, for being our guest today and for shedding the light on some of the issues around addressing climate change that many aren't talking about. And the book is Healing Grounds, and I encourage our listeners to read it. I guarantee you, you're going to learn something new and think about some new solutions for this planet. So thank you to our listeners today. I also wanted to share with you, I will be doing a nutrition support group starting in June via Zoom. We're going to be discussing topics like creating a healthy gut and brain, parasites, SIBO, having a healthy immune system, liver health, and more. And just go to foodintegritynow.org and click on Hire Carol button, and then go to classes to sign up. Our classes will start June 1st. 
Thank you so much. And thank you, Liz, again, for being our guest today. And we will be back with another great show soon.